Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, Okay, so there's so much to talk about today. Um, uh, yeah, yesterday we we concluded uh, with a brief discussion of the um, the murder of <coughs> of Sarah Halimi and the decision uh, essentially to find innocent or uh, not capable of standing trial uh, her murderer, um, who was. Um, uh, uh, of Arab descent. Uh, she was an Orthodox Jewish woman. He beat her up and threw her off a balcony, uh, tortured her, beat her up and threw her off a balcony, screaming Allahu Akbar. And the court found that because he was high on marijuana, he uh, did not know what he was, uh, he did not know what he was doing and therefore could not be tried. And, um, you know, uh, the outrage has been growing over the last two weeks. Uh, this big rally in, um, in Paris on Sunday, uh, discussing this. Uh, but I wanted to place this in a slightly different context, not just for France, but uh, for uh, Western Europe in general. Um, and one of the reasons, by the way, that Western Europe lost its standing, I believe, in the 1980s as the sort of leader or hallmark of Western civilization, whereas the United States was still a kind of, you know, vulgar, crass place that, you know, didn't have culture and refinement and all of that, which was very much the cultural attitude of the time. And um, time and again, uh, beginning really in the early 70s and then through the 1980s, uh, there were these series of uh, uh, anti-Semitic terrorist crimes against Jews, most Famously, of course, the uh, massacre of the 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. But um, over and over again, um, and I don't have the list in front of me, but there would be airline, a uh, uh, Palestinian terrorist, a member of Black September, something like that would be captured. Um, and uh, somebody would be kidnapped somewhere or a plane would be hijacked or something like that. And uh, lo and behold, a negotiation would take place and the terrorist who was detained would be released. Um, this happened time and again, both in, in, in Germany, in France and in Italy. And then in Italy in 1982, there was a, a massacre at a kosher restaurant uh, in Paris. And I believe, um, uh, again, <clears throat> by somebody shouting Palestinian slogans or something like that. And the, the famously, both, I think, uh, the president and the culture minister and all of that expressed surprise and, and shock, uh, couldn't possibly understand what would have motivated anybody to do this and would not call this an anti-Semitic crime. So time and again, uh, uh, terrorists, Palestinian terrorists, Arab terrorists were coddled, um, uh, sort of um, allowed to get away with their crimes. And the crimes against Jews 
were not labeled as such. And remember, we're talking about a period of time that we were, you know, like three decades, less than three decades, a little more than three decades from the Holocaust. Um, some of these anti-Semitic crimes that have taken place in France, obviously beginning with the, um, again, the massacre at the, uh, at the super cashier or whatever it was called, uh, supermarket, um, in Paris in, in 2015, 2016, uh, are very redolent of that time, including, and of course, most shamefully, uh, involving the American president and a refusal to assign anti-Semitism as the motivating actor in these, uh, despicable acts of, of that particularly, that particularly despicable act of terrorism. And here we have a case in which the French French judicial system is now uh, openly participating in this. So um, uh, what we have here is a kind of regression to a very peculiar mean. But what's different here is that I think in the 70s, there was this idea that these populations had, to, the politicians had to protect themselves against the depredations of the terrorists by appeasing them. And now it seems that the appeasement is internal and domestic, that it is about not irritating, angering, or, you know, causing further disruptions with Muslim populations inside these countries themselves, not to, again, not just in France, but in Sweden and elsewhere, the refusal to name the crime, the refusal to say that these kinds of actions, if you don't like Israel, you don't then kill Jews because you don't like Israel, all of that seems to be a pol uh, an act of political prudence on the part of uh, of politicians in these countries who are worried about not only more domestic disturbances, but perhaps they're worried about a voting block rising up to eliminate them or hurt their parties or stuff like that. Um, and so uh, once again, I think we have to look at that and say, what on earth do we make of what is going on here because a guy uh, kills 67 year old woman in a gruesome, horrible way, shouting Allahu Akbar and will not pay for his crime. Well, and, it, and it's important to note in his particular case that he told law enforcement that he was angered by the masseuse she had outside her door. So this was not a case of just, oh, I'm randomly angry. You know, I mean, he targeted her because she was Jewish and she was she had a clear symbol of her faith outside of her home. And that's why he attacked her. So that that is uh, is particularly appalling that they're not you know considering that aspect of the case. There's but there's another issue here with the French in particular and their uh, occasionally uh, their radicalized population, which is that you know in, on Friday there was another case of of a radicalized uh, immigrant to France stabbing and killing a police officer, also yelling Allahu Akbar. Uh, this was a Tunisian immigrant. Um, he wasn't on any in any of the radicalized database. Uh, uh, databases that law enforcement has in France tracking this population. He was evidently radicalized online watching jihadi videos. And he took, you know, he went and he, he went out and he, he killed a police officer in a fairly prosperous suburb of Paris. So there are French elections coming up. And one of the interesting uh, bits of polling in of the French population show that that concerns about this sort of domestic internal terrorism are up there, are, I think are only second to economic concerns right now among the general population, like more than 70% of French 
people say this is a major concern. And there's this right wing in France, this right wing political party that is making hay out of every single one of these cases. So there's a domestic political uh, positioning that's constantly going on anytime one of these attacks happens. And in some ways, that allows these political leaders to downplay the anti-Semitism that's going on here, right? They, they make it a broader case of radicalized Islamic immigrants to France. They try to, you know, they, they live in these, these suburbs that, that ring Paris and they, you know, they try to throw social service stuff at them and whatnot. But that allows them in some ways not to confront the underlying anti-Semitism problem. And I think the rallies and the protests that occurred this past weekend by French people and particularly by French Jews standing up and saying, no more. You know, this is clearly an issue that's that's distinct among this population of potentially radicalized Islamic immigrants to France. There's been an interesting development in Europe <clears throat> whereby um, a bunch of countries uh, that ha- where, where we've seen um, the rise of a nativist populist right, I'm thinking of in Eastern Europe, Poland and some other places, um, there's a sort of anti-Muslim immigrant right that has nonetheless inched closer to its uh, support for Israel. Um, I don't think actually that's characteristic of the French right still, and I think that says something. There's a there's a little bit of it, and and the funny part is that it is. Uh, you know, if you can say that the Dreyfus trial in in the 1890s was the you know animating force behind the creation of the Zionist or the or the real acceleration of of of, of Zionism and the Zionist movement, particularly because Theodore Herzl covered the Dreyfus trial and this was the moment at which he decided that Jews would never have a safe home uh, anywhere in the world and they needed their own state as a as a refuge and protection. Um, that. Uh, you you find in some of these cases an almost implicit um, acknowledgement of the theory of Zionism on the part of these right-wing parties in Europe, which is to say, uh, you know, we, we support Israel in some fashion because we think they should go there. Jews should live there. That's why Israel exists. Uh, we want a more uh, homogeneous society. Uh, Jews in our country are being uh, tormented by the same forces that we think are destroying our society, meaning these uh, Muslim, um, you know, migrants uh, or immigrants. And uh, and so, um, you know, I, Marine Le Pen, who is one of the leaders of the of the French far right, has kind of echoed these themes, and it's it's it's. It's an interesting kind of validation of the original idea, which is like she's saying, "Yeah, you're not safe here. You're 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 not safe here, and we can't really protect you. And you have this country. That's great. Go there." And it it's a I I don't think that you know that's a healthy attitude to take. It's like okay, well you know vote with your feet because um, we we have a civilized society here where we can't defend you. Um, so you better flee is a is a is an incredible indictment of course they don't mind the the, the far right in France doesn't mind indicting uh, you know the establishment society in France well and it's not I mean I will say that the the broader 
challenge of anti-Semitism in French culture is not limited to its immigrant population. Clearly, I mean, last year, there was the story of the runner-up in the Miss France pageant. Um, uh, she's Jewish. And so there was this barrage of anti-Semitic attacks that she received as the runner-up of Miss France when it was revealed that she was Jewish. I mean, there's a there's a kind of cultural acceptance of a level of what's called polite anti-Semitism in some of these, particularly the elite circles in France, that's... that that's appalling. Like this is actually something that I think people taking to the streets and pointing out this case has, you know, forced the hand of Macron who said he wants a change in this law, like this law that allowed the high court to really, you know, to say this guy was not criminally responsible. Now they might change that law. That's a good thing. But the the kind of cultural anti-Semitism that's long been accepted among the French elite is going to take a lot more uh, forceful acknowledgement and recognition to, to, to deal with. Um. Anyway, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a horrifying situation, and um, as of 2017, I believe, 10 uh, percent of all French Jews, with the largest Jewish population in Europe, um, uh, have uh, have emigrated. You know, had emigrated uh, to Israel. Uh, that number would have, I think, is going to get greater again. Obviously, there was a pause during the pandemic, um, although you know, so uh, and they are. Um, a well-to-do population; they are welcome uh, migrants in Israel. But um, uh, you know the, the the very idea that 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 um, uh, that this uh, the rise in 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 in, in uh, anti-Semitic attacks, particularly Muslim anti-Semitic attacks, and the 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 kind of combined elite and governmental refusal to deal with it. Uh, is leading to the deep is leading essentially to the depopulation, the slow depopulation, and dejudification of France, and that is, um, you know, as I say, both it's both horrifying and something that should be shaming to France and its own self-image of it uh, as a as you know the most uh, cosmopolitan and accepting of civilizations. Um, and again, I think uh, makes a very powerful case for Zionism, uh, which people don't make anymore, which is that uh, Israel is necessary because there are Jews in the world who are going to need a place to go uh, if, uh, and, and France has, 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 has proved this to be the case. I mean, I think you have like 100,000 French Jews have moved to Israel you know, over the last 20 years, almost exclusively because they no longer feel safe. And Israel is a refuge country. It exists as a refuge for Jews who cannot get security elsewhere. Uh, it, um, you know, just two years into Israel's uh, existence, 850,000 uh, Jews fled uh, Arab lands uh, where they had been living under, you know, various circumstances for some cases 2000 years uh to come to israel because uh because they had grown so incredibly inhospitable this makes the case for the need for a jewish state this is what zionism is about it's not about i mean for for many religious zionists it's about restoring you know the the biblical uh, control of uh you know, of, of the, of the Holy land as promised by God and all of that. But as a practical political matter, how anyone can look at what is going on in France and not say that uh, Israel is a necessary place on earth for this tiny, you know, there are 14 million Jews on a planet of 7 billion people, this tiny peoples that have somehow managed 
to survive through three millennia of, you know, of, of, of hostility. Um, and that, uh, and that, but now, now that now we know that there are the means to destroy Jews, you know, uh, on mass in a way that that was never true before. And, and, and here we are. So people want to understand, uh, why things like the BDS movement or, you know, post Zionist thinking or the kinds of, uh, pernicious garbage that come out of the mouths of, you know, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and people like that, uh, why they are so grave, not only gravely offensive, but ahistorical, foolish, and morally depraved, right? uh, Sarah Halimi killing is the prime example for this moment of why they are wrong and why their view of Israel is, is noxious and filthy. John, I just want to point out to listeners um, that um, there's quite a lengthy commentary uh, piece that uh, you, uh, myself, and Seth Mandel at the time wrote um, in the wake of um, some anti-Semitic horrors there a few years back, and it's called uh, The Existential Necessity of Zionism After Paris. Um and, I, and that I, was that was the hyper kosher case. I'm sorry, right. I called it super kosher, but the hyper kosher supermarket. Yeah, yeah, and it also one of the one of the key um, cases that we talk about in there that you that I've forgotten about until until I just looked this back up was um, Elon Halimi, um, who's the 23 oh year old. Remember, yes. who was lured to a That's, Paris slum, yeah. killed, uh, burned by acid, um, targeted because he was a Jew, and all the yeah. rest of it. And by the way, you know, one of the things about about uh, the name Halimi, uh, you know, Sarah Halimi, Elon Halimi, these are not these are Jews who are not French. I mean, that's to say they are they lived in the Maghreb. They they are from they are from North Africa, and uh, and and a lot of them uh, emigrated or sort of moved to to France when, you know, when the French colonies. Uh, you know, ended up having, you know, were in these uh, uh, terrible colonial wars and they came to France and they made, uh, they made lives for themselves and they made themselves, you know, successful, prosperous, serious, uh, while a lot of them actually maintained a greater connection both to, you know, to their peoplehood and to their faith and a lot of other uh, emigrants, uh, emigrants did and, and have. And so, I mean, that's the meaning of the name Halimi. That means they, 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 these are not people who sank deep roots into, into France. They came there, uh, again, as refuge uh, from, from uh, colonial civil wars. And uh, France, which has not been hospitable to, I mean, it, it needs to be understood that the, the, the wonderfully civilized and cosmopolitan French are horrible. They're horrible to their immigrants. They're, everybody has, you know, jokey stories about what it's like to go to Paris and deal with Parisians who hate you as a tourist and all of that. But they, they've always been horrible. They're very, uh, you know, interior, horrible, unwelcoming, very unwelcoming to their Muslim populations and very nasty and pl- played all kinds of weird health statistics games where they wouldn't even include the health statistics of Muslim immigrants or the children of Muslim immigrants in their national health statistics, so as so as to skew them more favorably, that kind of thing. So it's very, um, you know, it's a very disheartening fact. You know, you pull pull the, you know, so you can enjoy you can enjoy you know going to the left bank and 
you know, going to the Louvre and staying in hotels and all that, but, uh, but, uh, they don't like you and they don't like much of anybody. And apparently their judicial system is now willing to tolerate the murder of people who, you know, uh, exist for the crime of being, uh, notice, no, notably recognizably and, and signatorily Jewish, which is what's important about what Christine said about, uh, Sarah Halimi, Halimi's, um, mezuzah on her door and you put a mezuzah on your door to announce to the world that you are a Jew. Uh, with that, let me pause for a second and talk to you. Uh, we're, we're, we're saying that the Jews of uh, France uh, seem to be now morally invisible to, to many of the leaders and the elites of France and invisibility. You think you can be invisible? You think you can be invisible on online? You think you can escape the attentions of big tech, you can't. You may think that going on incognito mode on your browser is a way of escaping attention and escaping the data, uh, the people who scour the internet for data. But um, remember that on Chrome, incognito mode, Chrome is a Google product. Uh, and Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action suit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, incognito, <clears throat> does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? ExpressVPN, because it turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. That means your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you in your location, but with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Expressvpn.com slash commentary. Uh, so the uh, preliminary or you know the uh, official results of the census are out. They came out yesterday afternoon, uh, the 2020 decennial census. Uh, and uh, it should we should say before people start saying that it, it systematically undercounted, it was all Trump, it's all terrible, monstrous, horrible. Uh, Gina Raimondo, uh, who's Department of Commerce, the former governor of uh, Rhode Island, uh, whose Department of Commerce uh, issued the census, did tell Joe Biden that it is her belief that the census is accurate. And, uh, and, and uh, there are a couple of very interesting facts about it. Um, uh, of course, the continuing shift of seats, not that many, I mean, eight, but away from, essentially away from blue states to red states or away geographically from uh, the Northeast and certain other places to the South and the Southwest. Uh, uh, eight seats out of 435, um, which of course now has triggered the usual conversation every 10 years about how this just proves that the House of Representatives is too small. It's only grown since 1912. It hasn't really grown in size. And we're, of course, we have 800 trillion more people. And so the House of Representatives no longer represents local interests. And it needs to be three times or four times as large as it is now or have a, a thousand members. 
which is an interesting idea and could happen and there are arguments for it, but that's one, one thing. And then the other thing is we see real signs of uh, a demographic crash in the United States. So the population grew by 7% uh, from uh, to 2010 to 2020. That is the smallest increase uh, over the course of 10 years in, I think, 100 years? Uh, since the Depression, yeah. Yeah, or so that's yeah, like 80, years, 80, 80 or 90 years. And um, and w- why is this a problem? Well, we get back to the 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 key issue of our of our time financially in terms of the of the wall uh, hitting America, which is um, uh, if we don't have a large enough workforce as the baby boomers retire, who is going to pay for their benefits? And we if we if we increase by seven uh, percent. Um, you know, in a in a growing, vibrant economy, relatively, gro- it will stop being vibrant. It will stop growing, and uh, we will have this horrible shortfall in the number of workers needed to sustain economic activity um, and provide the money to government that will pay the health benefits and the retirement benefits that are now, you know, every American's birthright. So, uh, anybody have any thoughts on all of this? Well, I just I just want to add one point to that. There, there, there's another problem. I mean, there's there is the there is the um, economic reality of that, um, but there's also what it says uh, about a society that doesn't um, sort of want to reproduce at replacement levels. Um, it, it's it's a it's a generally depressing um, um, window into sort of, you know, our, our sense of confidence and well-being and, um, you know, what we envision for the future, um, that we're not having kids. Very much so. And, and that is a, you know, one of the keys to understanding America's success versus Europe's, of course, is that Europe has been depopulating now for three generations or something like that. You know, you have, you have, um, Italy, I believe, has a replacement level of one or 1.2. You need a replacement level of two to simply remain at your current population level. And, um, and so, uh, France, uh, excuse me, uh, Japan is the same. Um, and America was avoiding this, uh, demographic collapse over the court while other advanced democracies were, um, were, uh, plunging into it. Um, and that may be over with. I mean, we are growing. So we did grow, but we grew at a much slower rate. And of course, we're also growing. And the, 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 here's the conundrum of our time. So so we're growing a lot more slowly. We, are, we may not have a large enough workforce and all of that. At the same time that the American people, or a lot of the American people, uh, you know, have turned on immigration, which is one way of dealing with this problem, which is that you import people to be your workforce and then, uh, and then produce more people who can be part of your workforce and all that. So, um, it's a conundrum and uh, yeah, the solution to a demographic collapse is, is to bring people in. And that seems to be something that there is a an odd coalition of some parts of the left, not all, because obviously there's a whole open borders um, camp on the left, but uh, and much of the right that says, you know, nah, they're they're impurifying us, or they're 
they're wrecking our civilization. They're what's responsible. But I, I, I don't know how you can look at, you know, Mexican migrants and say that they're the ones who are ruining our civilization. When we all know what's ruining our civilization, it is, it is anti-American, uh, anti-Western, uh, this, uh, this, uh, internal, uh, sort of suicidal attack on our own institutions, our own values, our own viability, the importance of the American experiment and the, and the virtue and value of being the world's most powerful and wealthy country, which, uh, which, uh, people either take so for granted that they don't think that that is something that needs to be tended to, uh, lest it, lest it go away or, or don't like because they think it uh, makes us mean or there's too much income inequality or I don't even know what. Well, a healthy society has room for for two responses to a declining population. One is to encourage people who you know grew up, were born and raised in this country to have more children. And you do see a lot of that on the left and the right in terms of economic incentives. But I think that issue speaks more to what Abe was saying about a kind of general malaise about the future that is that is more worrisome. And, and to your point, John, is absolutely compatible by those of us who want to who want to promote a vision of this country as much more optimistic and much more um, future oriented and healthy than than what you might see in many of our elite institutions. But the on the other side of that is a healthy country encourages immigration because the people who come here want to be here. They settle here. They raise families here. Those children born here are instantly citizens of this country. They contribute to society. And they the assimilation process in a free society allows for the retention of, of parts of the culture that they came from that they want to continue to celebrate while still thinking of themselves as Americans. And now even talking about assimilation in some circles is seen as you know uh, horribly racist, right? How dare you tell people they have to become something that isn't their you know, country of origins, culture. I mean, it's it's so confused because assimilation doesn't mean wholesale rejection of your previous, you know, uh, national identity. It means embracing a new country for which you want to become a citizen, raise your kids in, while still raising your kids in whatever traditions you feel are appropriate to, to teach them. And I think that we've lost that definition. You know, the whole melting pot of the 19th century, while heavy-handed as imagery and probably never in practice, you know, f- fully realized, did have an optimistic flavor to it because you know the the ceremonies they used to have they would every individual person becoming a citizen would wear a kind of costume of their country of origin they would walk behind this big thing of a pot and they'd come out waving american flags i mean th- there was a whole sort of ritual acceptance of what assimilation meant it was an optimistic thing and i think we've unfortunately lost that and there are people on the right and the left who've contributed to the the sort of pessimistic outlook we have about immigrants in this country. But we shouldn't <clears throat> overinflate the problem. We had probably the most hostile administration governmentally towards immigration over the course of the last four years, and we yes. did not experience a decline in immigration. We experienced waves of immigration, in fact, both legal and illegal to the extent that they were crises. Nor is this a problem limited to the West. China is experiencing a population decline, a pronounced one that has occurred over the course of a decade and threatens the, the social compact in the state to the point where they're now on the verge of a natalist campaign. Um, it has very little to do with their rates of immigration or their hostility towards immigrants or anything else. In fact, it just might be the fact that when a society reaches a certain point of economic development, the pressures on you to, to marry and have children young decline. We see it across the board in just about every industrialized society, regardless of their cultural affinities or how they structure their social organization or their governments. So in order to address this in a more holistic fashion, 
the United States is probably the best positioned in part because it has a culture of immigration that has not been and cannot be undone by waves of populist sentiment designed to protect and preserve that which the the existing citizenry already has access to. Can well, I just you, add yeah. very quickly that um, an interesting point, that, which is that uh, Israel is which is um, is bucking that trend. Um, uh, while the country's you know been expanding economically and certainly industri- industrially, um, it is also reproducing at uh, more than sufficient uh, levels. Right. And, and by the way, the cultural the cultural strife in Israel over this is very interesting because it is telling uh, globally about what what is happening, which is to say that the 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 the, the birth rate in Israel is ballasted. It's close to three. Uh, remember, replacement is two. So it's, it's it's nearing three and it's all being ballasted by ultra orthodox Jews who have enormous numbers of children sort of like old you know uh, irish and italian catholic families like they have enormous numbers of children and the you know cosmopolitan elite of israel is finding this horrifying because they are seeing and they are seeing real signs of uh the de- degradation not only of their cultural control of you know of, of the of the high ground and politics uh, they are they are the the demographic trend suggests that orthodox jews will make up a majority of the is, uh, population of israel in in the next 15 to 20 years and uh and that means that um and so you that's why you get all this kind of i would say pitched hysteria in elite israeli circles about this and i i don't think that one should discount the possibility that we will see some of that in the United States over the next 20 years, as there are certain populations that will have higher, way higher birth rates than others. And I I just mean by that, you know, people who are still very small minorities, you know, like Mormons, uh, you know, and, and then, and then poor, you know, Mexican immigrants, people like that, and uh, their political strength is going to rise as the, this is part of the interesting thing about, you know, white decline and all of that. Uh, the the general thought on the left is that this is all great. And because this kind of uh, shift in population emphasis is toward, you know, uh, more minority populations and the Republican party is a party of whiteness and, and, and all of that. But um <clears throat> Not if this is the thing that people have been waiting for. It's like the dog that hasn't barked, but maybe it will yet. But if they're more religious, if they don't like wokeness, if they don't like uh, radical social change in the form of transgenderism and all of that, uh, increasingly they will have they will start looking in another direction, and that's partially this little these little shoots of interest that we see in Trumpism among you know among Hispanics. Uh, this, you know, this uh, quite uh, startling um, shift in Trump's vote in admittedly very small counties and stuff like that, mostly uh, across Texas and all that, um, maybe may speak to that. It's like what what interests the the American liberal elite is not anything that interests the people on whom it claims to speak. And that may well be true of the sort of the natalist thing. The other part that it has interesting political consequences is the natalists that we know, you know, our friend Jonathan Last and Ross Douthat and people who talk about this end up being heterodox politically. 
you know, they, uh, tax cuts are not as important to them as, uh, as expanding child tax credits and providing whatever support they can for marriage and family and small children to make it as appetizing as possible for people to get married, to stay married, and to have as many children as possible. And that means violating certain types of what have become sort of Republican conservative orthodoxy. Um, um, and and that, that also has an interesting, there are interesting cross currents there that are, are hard to, you know, uh, sort through. Okay, I'm going to talk to you guys about the X chair. I'm sitting in one right now. The X chair, you've heard me talk about it. That uh, a luxury supercar of office chairs with its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable support to my lower back. And now thanks to its new HXHMT technology, you get heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk. Because that XHMT delivers heat and massage technology right to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. Those are perks that make working from home, as I'm doing right now, a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast-warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. Instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, I look forward to spending hours sitting in the Ultimate Therapeutic Massager. You won't believe the extra difference until you feel the extra difference for yourself, and it's on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So, Noah, you are... um, uh, a wash in um, uh, both uh, b- befuddlement, amusement, and anger at the uh, effort to gaslight people on the issue of Democrats and meat and Biden and meat. Uh, and that doesn't sound like, you know, that exciting a subject, but please ventilate upon it. No, it's thrilling. <laughs> um, so we, there. first of all, there's a fair bit of do comeuppance for uh, right-wing media consumers today from the left, in part because we had over the course of the last couple of weeks a news cycle uh, surrounding the notion that Joe Biden's audacious climate plan required Americans to eat 90% less animal protein than they currently do by 2030. This was a notion that was promulgated, originated in a blog post by the Daily News, which is something of a tabloid, uh, citing a study which purported to make this recommendation. The, the Daily Mail, right? Not the Daily, Daily Mail. News. Thank yeah. you. I'm sorry. And then attributed that to Joe Biden and his allies. And that was erroneous. It's not part of Joe Biden's climate plan. It was advocated by Congresswoman uh, Lauren Bobbert. And it took off from there. It's been on Fox News all over the place. And the right winger of fact checkers and Fox News watchers and the sneering condescension that passes for comedy have been hammering this for the last week now saying, you know, these news Fox News watchers are so credulous. They're being misled by their by the media outlets that are starved for divisive content. And this is just how they get it. And they're lying to you. And there's a lot of truth to that. And it's not the only story that's a part of this. And yet it was it has been promulgated by. Uh, professional reporters, Jonathan Martin at the New York Times, um, Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, and a whole lot of opinion writers who have backed into this narrative that Joe Biden is preternaturally averse to cultural conflict. He steers clear of the culture wars. You can see op-eds anywhere. Just Google uh, Joe Biden culture wars, and you will be 
deluge by the number of uh, pieces that purport to credit all cultural conflict to Republicans. Republicans are obsessed with the culture. Joe Biden doesn't do any culture warring. All he does is, you know, pocketbook economic issues. And he really, he doesn't touch the Dr. Seuss stuff. He's, he's, he's just, he floats above all of this. And it's bunk for a variety of reasons. First of all, just to touch on the burger stuff, which is probably the, the best example you have of liberal gaslighting. They have this conversation amongst each other and they make proposals in things like the Green New Deal and the 2018 United Nations uh, IPCC report, the Climate Change Committee, um, and, a, and half a dozen other studies from academic institutions, including the one that the Daily News or Daily Mail cited, which do purport to make these recommendations. The 2018 uh, Intergovernmental Panel, Panel on Climate Change, which said that, you know, we had these 12 years, we have 12 years before the, the, the whole country or a whole planet rather is, is consumed in fire with a hundred, 1.5 degrees Celsius increase over the course of that decade. It required you to meet that it required advanced nations in the West to eat 30% less meat. And uh, studies that followed up on it said things like, no, we actually do need 90%, 90% according to a university of Oxford study, uh, study that was published in the journal of nature in the following year. Um, particularly in the Western world. These recommendations aren't hard to find. There's one in the Green New Deal that presupposes that agriculture, particularly livestock, need to be curtailed in order to decrease our emissions to a sustainable level. And Joe Biden is tacitly supportive of these things insofar as he and his allies cite them when they advance things like the reintroduction of the Paris Climate Accords. Now, there's no direct language in there. But all you have to do is, is go one step removed to find their allies talking about it. And, and this brings me to a broader point, if I can continue, about the notion that Joe Biden is not a culture warrior in any shape, way, or form. It has become an article of faith on the left, in part because the culture warring that the left does, in their view, isn't culture warring at all. It's just a restoration of the civic compact that we should all be a part of, or rather an assumption that economic values aren't cultural values. So when you have efforts, for example, to increase unionization in every possible way, this administration can't say the word jobs without saying good union as a modifier. And they are pursuing that in legislation, the effort to kneecap the sharing economy through legislation and increase unionization rates. That's culture warring. The effort to create infrastructure, to, to, to find infrastructure is everything and anything, including senior care and caregiving for uh, children and paid time off. All you have to do is listen to how the advocates for this sort of stuff talk about it, creating a culture of paid leave, for example. It's culture warring, getting the Fed, the Federal Reserve into the racial justice business, which is legislation before Congress that the Federal Reserve should concern, concern itself with uh, racial equity when it's devising monetary policy. That's culture warring. Restoring Title IX um, restrictions on campuses that allow them to adjudicate accusations of sexual assault, many of which resulted in judgments against those who were prosecuted in these star chambers. Redefining gender in a way that is now before the courts so that people can actually, who are suing to allow transgender uh, individuals not to not have access to women's sports, which is something that this White House supports. And introducing critical race theory in schools, which is something Christine has written about and she can talk in more detail about. That's all culture warring. 
And so Joe Biden's allies in the media think that the president is totally insulated from all this because he's not a daily presence in the news. He's not a daily presence on Twitter, putting his thoughts out there. He's not a he's not on the front lines of the culture wars, but he's prosecuting them. And the notion that voters will miss this or they will somehow create some sort of a division between Joe Biden and the party he leads is fanciful. Well, we don't know that yet, but Christine, you were going to. Well, I was just going to say, this is a really important point about how culture wars are fought, because as Noah says, one of the reasons that you that Joe Biden's administration doesn't have to spell out its views on meat is that there's already in the air, thanks to a lot of liberal propaganda on this matter, people who already believe it. And he's signal. there's a way to signal without saying out loud. So let me give you an example. In eighth grade, my kids who go to D.C. public schools were one of my kids was really into science that year. And he was invited to join a special science project project on climate change that, that was being sponsored by some, you know, private foundation that all the school kids were going to do. So he did that. And, you know, they would do this after school stuff. And he would tell me, oh, we're doing all this interesting research. We have to pick a project. Well, they had this final unveiling of the projects and all the parents were invited to attend. So we all go on one evening on a weeknight. And um, I think, I mean, this is an estimate, I would say 85 to 90% of the presentations on climate change were about the flatulence of cows and what it means for our beef consumption. So all these kids, these are from schools all around the district, and they weren't given a curriculum. They were encouraged by their teachers with the, with what they'd learned already about climate change to pick a project. And almost all of them talked about how everybody should stop eating cows. And it became kind of, by, by the end of the evening, parents were kind of looking at each other like, is there some weird indoctrination we don't know about? And actually a group of us went out afterwards for hamburgers because that's the kind of yeah. parents we are. But there was a there was already... At that moment, these little these little kids reciting a kind of ideological approach to climate change that was not entirely based in fact and was very much given this gloss of there were all these words that they were taught to say about climate change and signal about climate change. And it all came down to the flatulence of cows. So when when the right wing picks up a, something like that, it's building on something that's already out there. So it's not coming out of nowhere. Well, look, this is a perfect issue for like 13-year-old boys, right? Because it's farting. These are what's the fart jokes. You would not believe some of these presentations. (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll tell you why. Just a a quick quote, just to add to this. So um, in a bunch of the articles about um, what Rube's, the right is for believing that Biden wants to, uh, uh, you know, ban hamburgers, you would the the sentiment that was overwhelmingly expressed was um, something along the lines of, "No, of course Biden's not going to restrict uh, your meat consumption by ninety percent. Um, Republicans are idiots." By the way, though, we really should um, we really need to restrict um, your meat consumption by ninety percent to save the planet. Right. Well, I, there's this great tweet uh, that I sent you guys yesterday from Zach. Uh, uh, Beecham or Beauchamp or however it's pronounced at Vox, the guy who, you know, uh, invented the bridge from the, the West Bank said there, there should be a bridge from the West Bank to Gaza, not knowing that there, no, there is, know, it exists. He said, Oh, it exists. Yeah, right. Yeah, the yeah. bridge. Yeah. The famous bridge from the West Bank to Gaza. <clears throat> Here's his tweet. The absurd claim that Biden is trying to ban meat reveals a scarier reality. We need to reduce meat <laughs> consumption to head off catastrophic climate change. But the culture war might make that impossible. Right. So it's only culture wars when yeah. Republicans notice. Yeah. Which is right. a, but and this is why this appeals this first of all, the religiosity 
associated with the practice of environmentalism on an individual level involves piety and pain. And your penance for living in an industrialized society demands that you submit to pain. This is, this is a punishment for your largesse. Yeah. It is unfounded in anything scientific. Uh, 2021, before the, you know, or just recently, a couple of months ago, Virginia Tech published a study that determined that if all dairy cattle were vaporized overnight, you know, thanos right out of existence, we would reduce greenhouse emissions in this country by a whopping 0.7%. According to the US EPA, all greenhouse gas emissions from meat and dairy production, livestock, accounts for only 4% of emissions. So again, if they just simply ceased to exist tomorrow, we produce approximately 3% fewer emissions than we do at present. All this, you know, primary drivers of uh, gases in the atmosphere that contribute to climate change is, change is produced by burning fossil fuels. Everybody, we all pretty much agree on that, but there's nothing you can do about that. You personally can't do anything about that. You can submit to the reduction of your intake of animal protein and demonstrate your piety your uh, perseverance and your adherence to the cause. Um, would you like to know how many cows there are in the world? 1.4 billion. Would you like to know how many cows there are in the United States? 94 million. So guess what? America, you know, the stockyard of the world or whatever it was called, actually has one fourteenth of the total population of cows on Earth. Yeah, if they were thanos <clears throat> but they can't be thanos So what happens then? Oh, by the way, are you going to insist on uh, on violating uh, the, uh, the, the faith-driven precepts or whatever you want to call them um, of Hinduism that, that, that uh, declares cows sacred and forbids their killing? Of course, you're, you're not in the second largest populated country on the planet Earth. Uh, how, how has anyone dealt with that? You're not supposed to devote a lot of thought to this. It is a religious precept. <laughs> Your willingness to subordinate logic to the to the to the demands of this faith okay. is the challenge before you. Can I just say though? I, I do want to say one of the reasons that this really annoys me is <clears throat> impossible foods and beyond foods and these you know meat substitutes, plant based meat substitutes really are miraculous things and they're miraculous in all sorts of ways for all kinds of populations. I mean, I just think like of uh, people who keep kosher, for example, and who could have, have a new option or, or people who have really can't tolerate, you know, fat in their diet or there, there's a whole kind of, this is a fantastic development that they've actually managed to do this and to figure it out and to sculpt it. And it is, it is a real advance. It's a real innovation. And and the politicization of this is horrifying. Like, you know, this is something that could happen organically over the space of three or four generations that people will just over time start preferring this or deciding that the, the benefits of it outweigh the risks or there'll be a kind of, or as, as a kind of, alternate an alternate thing like almost like diet soda which barely existed in 19 in the early 1970s and now i think is the largest segment of the soda market but um yeah it's becoming part of the culture wars because they are making it part of the culture wars precisely and i don't want to actually burst your bubble here but the the plant-based meat alternatives are what's called 
ultra processed foods and have as much as 20% more calories, 80% more sodium than the average lean beef burger. And then there's, so we get into the realm of whether or not there's a health issue right. here. Okay, and there was a 2019 enough. study that showed in the Annals of Internal Medicine that showed 61 past studies involving 4 million participants that concluded that red meat intake, you know, is bad for you. It actually has very little relative health risks. The right. data, the certainty of the evidence is actually quite low, according to the epidemiologists who studied this sort of thing. So what you're left with is a moral argument. You're left right. with the notion that maybe this isn't great for you. Maybe it doesn't taste the same, but you're doing something good. And that's the that's the value you should derive from it. The satisfaction, the moral satisfaction, the, the conscious, conscientious satisfaction you derive from eating this sort of thing isn't health benefits. It isn't environmental benefits. It's the fact that you are living a life that is pious and noble and good to your neighbor. Well, it's a religious I, argument. Well, and I have a lot of, uh, I would, I totally support any individual's right to make the the argument that they feel it's unethical to eat animals. Like there, there's an entire literature on this. I mean, some people take it to an extreme. I have a lot of friends though, who will say, look, they don't eat beef, but they also don't eat chicken, which actually per pound is, a, if you're concerned about animal suffering, is is a lot more suffering per pound than beef. Um, they don't eat seafood. They are, ve- some of them are vegan and they have a, they have a ethical construct that they're following and they're doing it consistently. I have total respect for that. But in a free society, the state cannot mandate what people can and cannot consume on a daily basis. And yeah, another, we'll see about that. Well, another point to the culture war, the reason this issue resonates with Fox News viewers is because not because they're all rubes, but because some of them live in places where state and local government has tried to do just that. You can't get a plastic straw. You can't get a supersized soda that isn't highly taxed. You know, all the efforts in New York to kind of nanny state people's food choices. This is actually an effort on the behalf of well-intentioned, but but very controlling elite bureaucrats who want to tell people what's best for them. And I I think it's healthy when people resist that. Okay, I want to move on. You mentioned states, and I want to. I want to, Abe. I want to talk to you about uh, our favorite subject, of course, which is COVID and the pandemic. Um, you made the point yesterday that um, it, it seems very clear now. There's not going to be a fourth wave uh, uh, of the pandemic. Um, if you look at the at the sort of at the, the year long chart, uh, not only isn't there going to be a fourth wave, but the but whatever there is now. Uh, we are sliding. We are there is a over the last two weeks. We are seeing decline in everything, case numbers, daily I mean, deaths. We're not seeing specifically a decline in case numbers, but again, that's because more people who are testing are more likely to have COVID than they might have had before. Although the case the case te- positivity rate is like three percent, which is pretty good nationally, but. Yeah, declining deaths, declining hospitalizations, and it is it is now uh, very consistent over over the last two or three weeks as the vaccination program has 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 come to bite. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, the case case numbers, by the way, are are down now again. Um, yeah. They, you right. Know, after having plateaued for a while, that that everyone was you know calling um, yeah. some sort of you know um, uh, the the start of the new wave that that yeah. never happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, our friend Eric Osterholm, the you know the uh, uh, the chicken little of the pandemic, said that this was going to be a Category Five hurricane, the fourth wave. Um, don't worry, he'll be on TV constantly, despite having said that. But I I, I wanted to point out that there is a, a new political line that is being promulgated all over the place, which is that the vaccine hesitancy that is now the only real barrier to us achieving herd immunity as fast as we might be able to achieve it. Uh, is now so overwhelmingly an, uh, a matter of uh, Trump 
states Trump voters and Trumpism and uh, and all of that. And there's, you know, there's, look, uh, people are behaving very weirdly. You mentioned Fox News. I mean, you get the implicit sense from Fox News and certain people on Fox News that they don't want you to get the vaccine, which is, you know, while themselves almost certainly all having been vaccinated for whatever populist reasons they have. But, but um, uh, somebody came up with a... Uh, uh, a tweet. Let me just find this. Hold on. Um, about states, the states that have, uh, uh, okay, the top ten states with at least one vaccine dose. Uh, New Hampshire, seventy-three percent. Massachusetts, sixty-six percent. Connecticut, sixty-six percent. Vermont, sixty-four percent. New Mexico, sixty-four. Maine, sixty-three. New Jersey, sixty-three. Hey, congratulations, Noah. New Jersey, 63, Hawaii, 63, Rhode Island, 62, and California, 60, okay? So, uh, by the way, so uh, when Ann Applebaum, who tweeted this out, says, you can see this is now all divided by politics, uh, New Hampshire is not a, is not a, uh, uh, is not a blue state. Uh, it's, a, it's at the very least a purple state and maybe trending more toward being a red state. Again, we don't really know. Bottom 10. South uh, Carolina, 45%. Arizona, 45%. Uh, Idaho, 45%. Georgia, 44%. Uh, West Virginia, 44%. Wyoming, 43%. Tennessee, 43%. El, uh, Louisiana, 41%. Alabama, 40 And uh, Mississippi, 39 So this is where you're going to hear. You see, it's all the Trump states, and they're poisoning us, and they're killing us, and Trump kills us, and they're voting. They're, they're, they're all crazy. Uh, so I looked up the ten least, uh, you know, the ten least vaccinated states, uh, and uh, here are the number. I, I just want to mention this because this is a, a, about the populations of these states uh, that are African American. Okay, so uh, Mississippi, thirty-seven percent African American; Georgia, thirty-three percent African American; Louisiana, thirty-two percent African American. Uh, South Carolina, 28%, Alabama, 26%, Tennessee, 17%. So in these states, you have a, um, a black population that is, uh, in, in, in Tennessee's case, only a couple of points above, um, you know, the overall American population. But in all these other case, states uh, leading up to Mississippi, you are talking about wildly disproportionate numbers of black, of, of black residents and this notion that we are supposed to, um, we're supposed to know that, uh, you know, th these are just Trump states being Trumpy. Well, we uh, we know that it's not just about politics because the Kaiser Family Foundation has been gathering data about vaccination by race and ethnicity for some time now. They have a whole website about it. Um, they update it frequently. They're they with the caveat that they that not all states are reporting their vaccination rates by race and ethnicity in the same way. There's a pretty clear picture that emerges that the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, discusses, and that's that uh, African American and Hispanic uh, folks are not getting vaccinated at the same rates as their percentage of the population. So there's there's data about the groups that aren't pursuing vaccination, and there are a lot of reasons why, and we've discussed many of them on the podcast. But to argue that just because it's those states, it's because they were it, they were Trump states, it doesn't make sense even in the face of the accumulated evidence we have thus far about who is hesitant about getting vaccinated. This is not unknown to anyone. It just doesn't afford you the opportunity to posture and sneer and condemn people from and heap scorn on them from great moral heights. 
they're they're treated very you know this is treated with kid gloves it's you know it's there's cultural reasons for this there's historical reasons for this it's it's understandable if not excusable and and a lot of people think it's excusable it's not it shouldn't be but this is intractable we should understand that there will be a significant percentage of the population that will not ever get vaccinated they're not listening to you not listening to us they don't care they're unreachable and your efforts to reach them only harden their recalcitrance. And there have been strenuous efforts. Yeah. Paradigmatically, we need to accept that there will be a significant population that will be unable to be vaccinated. And the way to do that is to establish some sort of arbitrary demarcation, at which point we can declare the pandemic locally over. And in places like UK, they have it. Um, 30% of the population there is vaccinated, roughly. And they're beginning to see it. They've seen it in their in their case rates, and they definitely see it in their death rates, where now the number of people who are dying of COVID is roughly the same as flu or pneumonia. It's, about, it's right. in single digits. Right. If you need an arbitrary off-ramp, that's it. Maybe hospitalization. I can have an argument about hospitalization and strain. Right. But we need to have that conversation about the arbitrary place we declare this over because a zero case rate at or approaching zero is never going to happen. I mean, it's also the case that we have we have in existence now this unbelievably condescending attitude toward minor, minority populations, which is if white people don't get the vaccine, then obviously they're being blitheringly irresponsible. Either they're Trumpers or they're like anti-vax lunatics and they're all disgusting and they should die. But... If someone's African American or Hispanic, look, they don't trust the government, the Tuskegee experiments, but you know, we need to do a better job of reaching out to them and talking to them and all this. I mean, it, you know, it is it is cringe-inducing how uh condemnatory people are of exactly the same quality, which is I'm not getting a vaccine. Uh, but as long as they're not white, that's something that needs to be understood and you need to help them and talk to them. This is the logic of, of this is the logic of equity thinking though. I mean, here in DC, huge amounts of city resources were spent on uh, targeting neighborhoods where there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy, literally sending people door to door shots in hand saying, you got to get the shot in your arm. And they were turned, many of them were turned down. All of this, many of the early sites for vaccination were in the, you know, uh, East of the east of Rock Creek Park in neighborhoods that were minority neighborhoods, none in the very few uh, vaccination sites uh, in the largely white wards. By zip code, we were told we were we have to wait our turn because we live in a white zip white zip code. I mean, all of these efforts were done. Uh, my tax dollars paid for me to have to sit and wait in line. Um, and, and a lot of people were fine with that. I personally was not because but the equity logic states if there is a disparity of outcome, the assumption has to be it's racist and we're going to challenge, you know, we're going to have that condescending attitude to help those who can't help themselves. It's, it's, well, that's it what it is. Attitudinally, it's racism. It's it pure is the racism, notion, of it course. is the notion that white people should know better, but black people shouldn't have to be expected to adhere to those values. What are they, how, how can what? they use logic to separate and just make a distinction between what happened 70 years ago and what's going to happen to them? We can't expect that of them. It is just it's awful. And I, I also I also have this one recommendation that we can go. Okay. Uh if you're a if you're somebody who likes Donald Trump and you want him to play a, a large role in 2024 and all of that, here's what I would do. 
I would start some kind of a campaign where I would raise $50 million. And I would go to Trump and say, we're going to run an ad campaign on Fox and One American Network and talk radio in which you're going to say, the proudest thing of my whole presidency was Operation Warp Speed. We developed these vaccines. I did it. No one did it. They all suck. Biden stinks and everybody is terrible. I made these vaccines. This is my proudest moment. And you should go get vaccinated because look what we did together and look what I did and me and me and I did it and I'm Trump and warp speed, Trump, warp speed, warp speed, Trump, 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 Trump. Okay? That could have the largest impact on those on those populations that we're talking about. Go to conservative media. Have Trump do it in conservative media and exactly the kind of language that Trump likes by telling him that this is something that will help him and aid him in other efforts to raise money and do stuff like that, that could have an enormous impact, it seems to me. And But you have to couch it in the terms that uh, he would hear, which is he gets to say he's the greatest, Warp Speed was the greatest. And they the doubted scenes are great. And they doubted me. They said, and, they, and you know what else? Remdesivir. If you get sick, get the things that I told you about, hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. They're now being used as analgesics in this fight. Anyway, that's what I would do. I don't have any money and I don't have, and I, and I, so I, I can't do it myself, but uh, you know, if anybody's listening, uh, give it a go if you want to try it. And for Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Buckworth. Keep the candle burning.